may be seated. If you have your Bible handy, uh, take it out and turn to Hebrews 7, where we were just reading. This is Palm Sunday, as I mentioned before, a Sunday where we celebrate Christ as the victorious king. He came riding in, and we're reminded that that Abraham, too, uh, was a victorious king. He had a victory in Genesis 14 over other kings, and and at that time he met Melchizedek. And Melchizedek enters our our attention at that point. He enters the story of the Bible, and and we learn a little bit about him there in Genesis 14. We we're going to look at Hebrews 7, which makes reference to that story, as Randy just shared with us. We've read together verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read now verses 11 through the end of the chapter, so please follow along with me as I read from the inspired word of God. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then For those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you right now knowing that your word is living and active, and we pray that indeed 
would be sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing us to our very core, convicting us of sin, and causing us to turn to you through Christ Jesus. May we see your glory, know your grace, and walk with you, being conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You know, there's certain people who are famous for one thing. You, know, you think of Neil Armstrong. What, what's Neil Armstrong famous for? He walked on the moon. First person to do it. Now, Neil Armstrong was, was a fully orbed person. He had all kinds of other aspects of his life. Uh, he might have liked his mother's homemade chocolate pudding, and he, he might have liked to sing in the glee club at high school. I, I don't know, but these are things that he could have done. He certainly had details like that. I, I don't know because Neil Armstrong is famous for one thing. He's the first man to walk on the moon. You know, Jonas Salk, there's another one. He's famous, right, for the polio vaccine. I'm sure that there were other aspects of his life. He was a real person. But he's known for one thing. Melchizedek is kind of like that. Melchizedek, we look at, and we, we see a person who is famous for one thing. He's famous for his appearance in the scriptures in Genesis 14. He shows up there. The only other places we even find him mentioned are in Psalm 110, verse 4, which refers to the story in Genesis 14, and then again in Hebrews 5 through 7, which once more refer back to Genesis 14. He's famous for that one thing. There, there are surely many more things that were true of Melchizedek, but we, we can't know them. We don't know them. We don't have access to all of that, but, but we do have access to some information. And so today, finally, after promising you this for many weeks, we're finally going to take a look at Melchizedek and what we do and can know about him. In fact, we're going to look at three different questions. First of all, we're going to look at who was Melchizedek. Secondly, we're going to consider what does this teach us? And then third and finally, why is it important? First of all, who, who was Melchizedek? Well, what we do know about Melchizedek, amongst all the things we don't know, are those things that, that Randy mentioned before in Genesis 14. Right? He, he was this, this king who shows up in Genesis 14, who is also a priest. He, he meets with Abraham. In fact, it says in our text today, in verse 1, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Abraham had rescued Lot and had, had defeated these other kings. And as he returned, he finds Melchizedek meeting him. And we find that Melchizedek blessed him. In Genesis 14, we read, he blessed him, said, Blessed be Abraham, or blessed be Abram, as he was known at the time, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He pronounced his blessing upon Abram at the time, who would later become Abraham. And to him, we see in verse 2 of today's text, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He, he gave him a tribute, a tithe, a, a portion of all that he had gained, the spoils of his victory. He gave a tenth of it to Melchizedek, showing honor to him as the greater. 
For this Melchizedek, Hebrews 7.1 tells us, king of Salem. So, so there we see something else about him that we learn. He is a king. Uh, he's a king. He's first, by translation of his name, we see in verse 2, king of righteousness. Now, now what he means by this is, is just very simply the name Melchizedek, broken down into two Hebrew words. There's the word Melchi, which means my king. And then Zedek, which means righteousness or righteous. We could literally translate it, my king is righteous. Or as the author of Hebrews translates it, king of righteousness. And he is also, we're told, king of Salem, it says in verse 2. That is king of peace. Once again, we look at the Hebrew, or this word Salem, which probably actually refers to Jerusalem, Yerushalem, is, is the same word with a different pronunciation to it as Shalom, which you might have heard of before, the, the Jewish greeting, Shalom, which means peace. And so you see what the author of Hebrews means when he says that this king of Salem is the king of peace. That word Salem means peace. And so he's saying he is the king of peace. He is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. That's who his identity is as, as a king. As we look on into verse 3, we see Without beginning or end, it says, without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, I think that as we read this, most commentators agree that it is not saying he literally is without beginning. Uh, of course, as a, as a man, he, he actually did have a father and a mother. He did have a beginning. But what is being suggested here is unlike all of the priests who had come before, and all of the kings who had come before, he, he has no genealogy that is known to us that, that suggests he should be a priest or a king. Of course, being a priest, being a king, those, those are both family businesses, right? You, you pass that along to your son. You, know, you, you become a priest because you are of the priestly family. You become a king because you are of the royal family. And what it's saying here is, is there's no genealogy listed. There are genealogies listed throughout the Bible for many people. And, and the idea is they substantiate why they are who they should be. In fact, we see, see the line of David providing a kingly line. We see the line of, of Aaron providing a priestly line. But None of these lines are shown here in Melchizedek. There is no genealogy presented to us in the scriptures. He appears on its pages seemingly from out of nowhere and provides us with a person who is thus, though not literally, symbolically, without beginning or end. And so he resembles the Son of God, we see in verse 3, and that he continues as a priest forever. He's a symbol. He's pointing us to somebody. And we'll come back to that later. He is, verse 4, we see, greater than Abraham. See how this man was to whom Abraham, Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. And, and the idea that he gave those spoils, as we heard before. And then also in that he, he conferred a blessing upon him. That's something done by the greater on the lesser. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, in verse 7 we see, is blessed by the superior. And so we have this picture of Abraham as lesser than Melchizedek. 
It's very important for us to remember this. Remember the place that Abraham held in Jewish understanding. He is the father of the Jewish nation. He's even more important than Moses. He is, he is the height of the, the most importance you could possibly have. And remember what these people are thinking of doing. They're thinking of leaving a, a Christian confession and turning back to Judaism. They're saying maybe it, it's not worth it. Maybe what we should do is turn back to our heritage and go back to the, the religion we grew up with, if you will, the religion of Abraham. Little do they know that the true religion of Abraham is not one of sacrifices by priests, but is the one of Christ Jesus. You see, because to turn back to this sacrifice that had been given is to reject Christ. It is to, to reject he who is greater than Abraham. And that they would not want to do. What else do we see about Melchizedek? He's a king. He's no beginning and end. He's greater than Abraham. He's also priest of the Most High God. It's interesting. It doesn't say that he's priest from some cult. It doesn't say that he's the priest of some other religion. But priest of the Most High God. He was a faithful presence as a priest to God Most High even though he wasn't a, a descendant of Abraham, he was a contemporary of Abraham's from somewhere else. And so we understand that even at this early time, that the people of God are not limited to just one nation or one culture, but rather God has in mind a, a, a people that he will call together as his that come from every corner of the earth, from every every race and every tribe and every, every language, every people group. That's the ultimate goal. And we see the, the very first pictures of that even right here in this story that dates back to Genesis 14. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, is, is not descended from Levi. He's not descended from Aaron. He's not typically of that priestly line where priests are born into it. But what he shows us is that there is a priesthood in addition to the priesthood that they had known for these many centuries. He's not just a different kind of priest. He is a greater type of priest than the Levitical priests. Greater, one might even say, we see in verse 9, that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. I like how Randy put it because his DNA was in him. He was in Abraham. It's so important for us to understand what, what's meant there, that thinking that, that he was somehow in Abraham, that he, he participated in that because he was in Abraham. But you see, the same principle holds true for us. We talk about how we participated in Adam's sin because we were in Adam as his descendants. Now, what is the solution to that? What is the only way that we can be saved from the penalty of that sin that we participated by being in Adam? It is by being found in Christ. You see, we, we talk a lot in our current day culture about having Christ in us. And that's right, that's good, that's, that's a biblical use of language. The Bible does indeed talk about Christ in us, but you know what it talks about far more than Christ in us? It talks about us being in Christ, 
being found in him. Now, we're not found in him by being his descendants like we are of Adam, but we are found in him through faith in him, through trusting in him as our salvation. And as we trust in him, the Holy Spirit unites us with him. It binds us together with him that we are truly then in Christ. And that is the only way we can be saved from our sins. Melchizedek points us toward all of this because of who he was, but also through what he teaches us. And we want to turn our attention to that now. Melchizedek received tithes. And, and we could say, well, what, what's the first thing he teaches us? And, and perhaps some of us expect, oh, great, this is the point where the pastor gets up and starts talking about money. We can see the pastor's going to make some message here about how we're supposed to give money, we're supposed to give tithes because Melchizedek received tithes. And look, Abraham, gave, well, that's not what we're going to talk about. You know why? Because that's not what this text is about. Don't get me wrong, there, there is a place for us to give not just money, but, but time and effort and all that we have to the Lord. But that's a message for a different day. You see, when we look at this, what what we're coming up with here is a message that's not just my ideas and my thoughts that, that I want you to hear, but, but we're looking at the text of Scripture, what it has to say for us. And Hebrews 7 is not a text about, about giving money to the church. And so that's not what we're going to talk about today. What we're talking about is what we do learn from it. And what we do learn from Melchizedek, in short, is this. We, we are taught about Jesus. That's what we're taught about by Melchizedek. We're taught about Jesus. Melchizedek is, is not contrary to what some people would say. Some people would say that he's, he's what's called a Christophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And I, I don't think that's quite right. I think that what he is is what we call a type of Christ. Now, now a type of Christ is, is a, a technical term that means it's a real person or thing that, that actually existed in time, space, history that, that existed on his own or on its own that nonetheless points forward to Christ and finds a, a, a greater fulfillment in Christ. And I think that's what Melchizedek is. As we look at the same categories, we looked at, a, at who Melchizedek was and what we learn about him, we consider how we learn those same things about Christ in a greater deal. He points us forward to Christ. First, he's a king, the king of righteousness. What did Jeremiah say in prophesying Christ? He said in Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He says that Jesus is going to be the king of righteousness just like Melchizedek was. But beyond that, he's also a king of peace. Isaiah 9, verse 6, those words that are very familiar to us from Christmas time. We always, during the Advent season, hear these words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, fill in the blank, Prince of Peace. He is the king of righteousness. He is the king of peace. Jesus is the one true king. For before the week is over, you will be standing before Pilate 
and saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I want to pause there for just a second and ask you a question. Do you listen to the voice of Jesus? Do you listen to his voice? Not just do you kind of, you know, pick the things that he says that you like and use him as kind of a rubber stamp to affirm your predispositions, but do you really listen to his voice? Do you listen to his voice and hear the things that he has to say to you? Not just from the sense of a a moral sense. That's certainly one way we listen to his voice. He tells us how we are to live our lives. He tells us what is right and what is wrong. And tells us what is good and what is evil. And we should live our lives according to his teaching. And so that is one way in which we listen to his voice. But do we also listen to his voice when he tells us, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, because by and large, the public likes to listen to Jesus when he, when he says some of the, the things in the Sermon on the Mount about being nice to people and such. And that's good. But oftentimes we reject Jesus when he tells us there is no other way to the Father. If we were to listen to Jesus, we need to take all he says. We can't just pick and choose He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. See, he's not just an ordinary teacher. He's not even an ordinary priest. He is a high priest without beginning or an end, like Melchizedek. Verse 17 of our text today, quoting from Psalm 110, says, It is witnessed of him, you are priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And in verse 24, we see he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. This is the reality of Christ. He he had a birth as a man, indeed, much like Melchizedek probably had a a father and a mother. So Jesus has father and mother, but, but his physical life as a man might be that way. But as a person, he existed eternally from The very foundations of time. John 1 puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word. Referring to Jesus as the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. Without him was not made anything that was made. And on the other end of the time spectrum. Though Jesus did die. We know that on the third day he rose again. And 40 days later, he ascended to heaven, where he even right now sits at the right hand of God, making intercession for us even now and where he will be for all of eternity, reigning forever and ever and ever and ever without end. And so he is indeed greater than Abraham. It's not even close. Abraham's the most exalted person that they could imagine. 
And he is the lowest of the low compared to Jesus. Why would they possibly return to Abraham? It makes no sense. Well, he was a priest also. This priest, this priest who was not from the tribe of Levi. Verse 13, we we read, For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe. It's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And so we see there, and, and moving on to verse 15, it becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. And see, we see here that, that the fact that he is a priest, he, he claimed to be a priest, he claimed to be making sacrifice for us. And when he rose from the dead, that authenticated his priesthood. When he rose no longer to die, no longer to be destructible, God had vindicated him, not only in his righteousness, but in his role as a priest who would be a priest forever. And so, greater than the Levitical priesthood, that that priesthood that needs a priest to be making sacrifice day and night and day and night, week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century, ongoing it's needed. But, But this priest, Jesus, did not need to do that. He was not needing to be replaced because of death like the the Levitical priests were, because he holds his priesthood permanently, it continues forever, and consequently, we read in verse 25, this is so important. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, on that single offering on the cross, he made the payment for all time, that we would be his, that we would be cleansed, And we would be saved. That's why it all matters at the end of the day. That's our third point quickly. Uh, That's why this all matters about Melchizedek. Because it points us to Jesus. And Jesus is the one, the author and perfecter of our faith. who, Who has saved us. Who has given us a way to come close to God. He has given us the way out of our sin and out of our judgment and out of our death. You know, you know what follows Genesis 14? Genesis 15. Which might not mean anything to you if you're not familiar with Genesis. But, but if you are familiar, you know that that's where God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with him and, and he, he appears before Abraham. He makes him go into a deep sleep. And, and what he does is he lines up these, these dead animals that are just cut in half. And two rows of these animals. And he passes through between these. And what this is, is it's a sign of how people made covenants. And what they do is they'd, they'd tear apart these animals and they would walk through them together. And it was a sign of them walking through it together. And they're in essence saying, if, if we would back out on this covenant, may I be like these animals and be torn apart. And yet when God goes through this covenant with Abraham, he doesn't take Abraham with him. He walks through on behalf of Abraham. And on behalf of us, Abraham's children, so that when we violate the terms of the covenant, when we turn away from God, when we reject him, when we, when we would be rebels against him, he says, I will pay the penalty for you. 
May I be torn apart for you. May I bear the penalty of your sin. And that's, of course, what happens in that very first Holy Week. For he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey as a king to the cheers of people, to the, to the waving of the branches and to the, to the songs and the worship and the praise and the glory. But five days later, he would be killed. But we need to know he was not killed so much as he laid down his life. He made that priestly sacrifice for us, sacrificing himself. And so we can draw near to God if we trust in him. If we trust in that sacrifice that he made. If we trust in him alone. In Christ, the old, ineffective Levitical priesthood is wiped away. It's set aside. For it made no one perfect. But in Christ, we have, verse 19 tells us, a better hope. And in verse 26 and following, we read, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself, What a beautiful promise that is. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, no longer requiring bloody sacrifices day after day, year after year, but rather he has made the bloody sacrifice for us. He has procured our salvation. If we trust in him and in him alone, we can have confidence that he has perfected us. Now, I don't suppose there are many of you who, like this original Hebrew church, are contemplating going back to a time where we sacrifice lambs on the altar, pouring out their blood for your sin. But there are things that I think that we might be tempted to turn back to. We might be tempted to turn to our own law-keeping, our own morality. We might think that, you know, if I'm just a really good person, that'll do the trick. Or perhaps we think, you know, I I grew up in the right church. I'm a part of such and such. I'm part of a Presbyterian church, so so that does the trick, right? Or, Or maybe we think just our church attendance, our church involvement, maybe our giving or whatever we do there, that does the job. And so we're going to depend on that. Or maybe it's just our spirituality in general, our our Bible reading, our prayer life, that those things are what justify us before God. Much as the Hebrews needed to forsake turning back to those daily sacrifices, those weekly sacrifices, that ongoing sacrifice, we need to forsake depending on these things. These are all good things. But much as we need to repent of our sins, we also need to repent of our good works. Repenting of our dependence on them to save us and trust in Christ alone. We must have the attitude of the hymnist who says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, may I then in him be found, dressed in his Righteousness alone, faultless 
to stand before the throne. Do you believe that? That in Christ Jesus, you can stand before the throne of a holy God, faultless, perfectly holy, not just mostly good, but faultless, holy, spotless, completely righteous, no sin in you whatsoever. That is what you can receive from a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Please pray with me. Our Lord, we thank you for that fact that indeed we can stand faultless before the throne. It causes us to wonder. It causes us to, to be awed because we know the depth of our own sin. We know the ugliness of our sin, the dirtiness of our sin, the fact that you can wash us clean is hard to believe. And yet we have it on your word that it is true. And so we trust in you, we depend on you, and we say, Jesus, make us clean and do it today so that we might stand before that throne one day faultless, We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.